This is Play It Like It's Music. I'm Trevor. Thanks for listening. On Wednesday, June 10th of 2020, music is not content, it's connection. To play the cello requires a smattering of cleverness and precision on the part of the player. The finger mechanics are complex. The alchemy of the bow is mystifying. On top of it all, gigs require an incredible fitness of nerves and preparation beyond many much more remunerative professions. However, mere cleverness and precision do not a complete musician make. Many cellists hit all the marks on their instrument but fail to make an artistic impact, and I feel for them. Because just playing the cello decently takes a huge amount of effort. Believe me, I know. And why pile on things like visual aesthetics or political awareness or, God forbid, writing verbal and administrative skills? Singing? Songwriting? Band leading? Give me a break. Fortunately, we have as our guest today a musician who brings it on every one of those levels. Marika Hughes is a native New Yorker, a cellist, singer, a storyteller on the moth. She grew up in a musical family. Marika's grandfather was the great cellist Emmanuel Feuermann, and her parents owned a jazz club, Burgundy, on the Upper West Side. As children, she and her younger brother were both regulars on Sesame Street. Get out of here! She went to Barnard College and the Juilliard School, graduating with BAs in political science and cello performance, respectively. Marika has worked with Whitney Houston, Lou Reed, Anthony Braxton, David Byrne, Adele, Henry Threadgill, D'Angelo, Edina Menzel, Nels Klein, Somi, and Taylor Mack, among many others. She was a founding member of the Bay Area-based bands Two Foot Yard and Red Rocket. She's a master teacher and director for young arts and a teaching artist at Carnegie Hall's Lullaby Project. Before COVID, she was holding down the cello chair at the Broadway show Town, and we hope they'll pick that back up. But Marika puts out a vibe that just won't quit, leading her band's Bottom Heavy and the New String Quartet, and as the co-founder and co-director of Looking Glass Arts, an artist residency and youth education program in upstate New York. We get into it. I mean, we've known each other a long time. So we talk about her legendary grandpa growing up and finding her own way in the Bay Area. Her initial band experiences, the first sound check, were kindred spirits. And I know you're going to love this conversation with Marika. Check it out. Okay, so who are you and what do you play? Uh, my name is Marika Hughes and I play the cello. Fantastic. I'm very mono-instrumental. <laughs> mono-instrumental, I like that. 
Why do you make music? I think I make music because I don't know what else to do. It's 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 that simple. What separates the professional from the amateur? How you earn your living. Do you want to specify anything? Um, I've played with some of the greatest musicians I've played with have been amateurs. Um, and I've also played with some people who really can barely put a bow to a string. Um, but I think, I think being a working musician, meaning like you've stuck it out and you're still doing it and you never stopped, the, I, I, there's a tenacity that it takes to do this because we have ups and downs. There's no security. Um, I think it takes, I think the difference might be a certain kind of tenacity and a willingness to live without any security. <laughs> cool. Um, well, uh, we've known each other for a little while. Uh, could you tell me your first musical experience as a child before you were playing? Like, wh when did you first register music as a thing? Oh, well, God, I mean, I'm not sure I could even identify a moment because I come from an incredibly musical family. So music, being a musician, musicians themselves were around since the minute I got here. And um, I can remember, I remember when I, I started on the violin and I can remember when I asked at the age of three, apparently, to if I could play the violin. Um, and it was not actually related to somebody in my family. It was a friend of mine. I don't even remember who she was, but a neighbor or something in the city who played the violin and we must've been playing together just, you know, like kids play. And then she played her violin and I thought it was so cool that apparently I came home and asked my mom if I could play the violin. Um, and that was probably around three. I think I started when I was almost four. So somewhere in that age range, um, was my first, engagement as like an individual, I guess, you know, with music, <laughs> like asking, can I do this? Um, but there was, we, I grew up with just music. My parents had a jazz club. My grandfather was a famous cellist. So it was just always there. Yeah. So tell me about the family background because not everyone has that kind of thing. So you had, uh, you had fuel for the fire on both sides. You had a classical <laughs> and a jazz uh, setting to learn in. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, my grandfather was Emmanuel Feuermann, who is legend. Hello. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Considered to be one of the greats. So he was your um, grandfather. Yeah, my mother's father, mm -hmm. but he died very young. He died at the age of 39 in 1942. Wow. Um, and my mother was only four. So she barely knew him, and I, of course, didn't know him, but he loomed very large in this very positive way in my family growing up. And I also grew up with a lot with my maternal grandmother, his widow, mm -hmm. um, and that side of the family, which came all were from Europe and from German Jews. But because of the war, World War II, some people like my grandparents, and my mother emigrated to the States. Other people ended up in England, mostly in England and some in Switzerland. Um so on that side of the family, I said, we sort of, sort of spread all out. And, um, yeah, so my grandfather, I grew up, we called him Poppy. Mm -hmm. I grew up hearing his records. It was like very normal. And with all of his contemporaries who lived also often in our house and, you know, 
not rehearsing, but just hanging out, coming to see my mom for a lunch or whatever yeah. may have been ever. Well, like so a lot of what, which kind of folks? People. Who are we talking about? Oh, there was like this crew of them. I mean, my sort of my great uncle by marriage was Alexander Schneider, the com- the conductor mm. and violinist, and Izzy Cohen and Felix Gallimier and Jamie Lorraine, people like that. Wow, like, so the real old that guard. Scene. Yeah, wow. the real old guard. What neighborhood <laughs> did you live in? The Upper West Side. That's amazing. So are there any uh, stories about grandpa that people like to tell? You know, I was so, but in those days, I was like this, I'm going to give away everything now, but that was like the seventies <laughs> and early eighties. Yeah. And, you know, I was going from being a little girl to becoming a teenager. And I also, well, I'll just say that being that I was already playing in a Suzuki kid, like that hardcore early mm-hmm. training, um, when I didn't have to practice, when I wasn't practicing like my two hours a day at seven or eight years old, and I could just go play tag and be like with my friends, the last thing I was interested in talking to these what consider I considered to be like ugh, the old fogies yeah. at that time, you know, was so anything. grandma didn't sit you down and be like, okay, Marika, you're carrying on the cello legacy. Hear me, let me lay some lore on you. That never happened. Oh, no, thank God. In fact, when I switched to the cello when I was 12, because I loved the C string, I was like, my mom didn't want me to switch instruments, knowing full well that that pressure as for your mom's granddaughter would be even more heightened as a cellist than yeah. as a violinist. Um, so no, in fact, they always gave me the freedom to not do it. Hmm. Interesting. Um, because the pressure was, and at that time in the eighties, when I had switched to the cello and was like advancing and being one of the better players around it, you know, whatever. Um, I, there was a lot of pressure and to, as his granddaughter, I was never anonymous in an audition or all those kinds of things. Wow. Programs. And then my parents had a jazz club on the Upper West Side, a few blocks from where we lived and um yeah well before i want to hit that too but like just as a cello player myself i mean a lot of people who listen to the show are not cello players and we're not going to get too deep into the cello weeds but just as a cellist the name of emmanuel foyerman is just it looms huge i mean most non-cello people don't know like yo-yo ma and maybe casals and that's about it yeah but um and now shaku people know who shaku is i don't know who that is you don't? I can't remember the last name. He's the black cellist, English black cellist with like, there's like six or seven kids in that family that all play phenomenally well. Oh. And he won like a huge performance award in England. And then when uh, Meghan Markle married Harry, he was the cellist at the ceremony that also just put him on the map. I had been, as a black cellist myself, like I had been aware of that family from YouTube videos they posted since they were really little. Oh my God. But once he played at the wedding, it was like he became supersonic famous. And um, he's a beautiful, beautiful cellist. But anyway, so he's now a cellist that people also tend to know. Which is oh, my cool. God. All right. I'm going to put the link for that guy in the show notes because I really want to know about that guy. And I'm yeah. surprisingly ignorant of a lot of things, it turns out. We all are. Um, <laughs> we all are. Okay. So, but anyway, just back to your grandpops, just for the listeners. Like, like Foreman's huge. I remember listening to his records of like arpeggion and they're kind of that grainy old like Victrola 78 sound, but it's just incredible cello playing and he also had this really strange posture where he held it really low like he had kind of a low slung mm-hmm. cello like that picture of him just there's this really old maybe i could get a picture of him to include too but he's got the cello like almost send you almost entirely below his knees was that how he normally played do you know that stuff you know that's really interesting that's not something anybody's ever talked to me about or even mentioned um hmm. And I never even considered it. I know really my one of the my earliest cello teachers um, 
was Suzette Hallas, and she had been a student of my grandfather. And so my mother and I, we would drive, my brother, we'd drive out to Long Island somewhere where she lived, and I'd take lessons at a very, my earliest cello years, which was incredible. So I was learning from someone who learned from my grandfather. Oh, wow. And, so you did get some of the, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. And there's some, like, really tiny little things, like shifting up in thumb position, like, I mean, this might not be interesting to people who don't play the cello, but <laughs> when you're, like, trying to, like, make I just promised shift. we wouldn't go into the weeds, so... <laughs> But like little details, like even to this day, you know, I'll be playing a gig, whether it's improvised or written music. And I'm like, damn, Kika, why are you, why can't you nail that B flat or whatever? And I'll be like, oh, oh, do that thing that Suzette told you. And it's minuscule. No one would notice you've done it. You know, this just Mm -hmm. like a slight shift of the shoulder that is like imperceptible. And then I'll always be like, right now it's perfectly in tune all the time. All right. Um, I'm going to hit you up for that in our next lesson. (laughs) (laughs) I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. So things like that and the bow arm i mean i could tell you stories for days his sister sophie who lived to be 99 she also lived on the upper west side i grew up around her tante sophie and one of the greatest compliments she ever gave to me once in berlin after i performed somewhere she came up to me and i was horrified because she was really hardcore mm-hmm. and really scary and she <laughs> hardcore in what world, way like, like hardcore classical yes like old world classical mm-hmm. like a lot of the people that I grew up around, not all, but a lot of them had a very singular approach to being a musician, not scope as a human being, but what it meant to be a classical musician. And I don't know at that era if people were um, so equipped to identify like what it is to be a classical musician versus like a jazz musician or pop, you know, it was just, this is what we all did. Right. And um, for sure, there was a lot of pressure on me and Sophie. Um, they came from this world where if that's what you're going to do, you do nothing else. So I wasn't like that. You know, I was always engaged in political action things. Like I tried to get my high school to divest from companies invested in South Africa and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then it's like you're a person growing up in America and we do have a different way of looking at what it means to be a person. I think a lot of that is worth talking about because the singular focus on being like a classical musician is super hardcore and super disciplined, but it's also kind of a luxury for like simpler times almost where there weren't endless distractions and and crazy economic abundance to pull us away from stuff. And also the, almost like we, I feel like we in a modern age have a a responsibility to really be broad in our awareness. So like sitting in the practice room and being like singular about music is awesome, but it's totally a luxury at the same time. Exactly. Well, also part of it, you know, these, these were, a lot of them were Russian and German Jews, right? And so they had grown up in great poverty, most of them, and struggled and found their way here and through hard work and grit and all the things that the Im- people who are, tend to be immigrants go through. And so to succeed here and carry it on, it, it, I can't begin to speak on that. That's not been my experience. But when I came around being a biracial black woman, my mother, four months daughter married uh, my father, a black man, and had us, me and my brother. And this was something very new at that. This was the late 60s, early 70s. So this was still like a mixed couple was still kind of like a radical Mm -hmm. notion and experience that people would be invited into and to our home, I suppose. And being that I, I can't ascribe like my politics or my engagement in things outside of music to being necessarily being biracial and black, but um, for sure, my interest in, I was very athletic. I was on 
teens, you know, I was political, all those things that didn't jive with that demographic of people that were, I grew up around in classical music and I was highly criticized and very much, um, told by a number of various people over the years that I would never amount to anything as a musician because I had all these other interests. And I do have a kind of a cool story about this with Yo-Yo Ma. And that's like when I was 21, he, I mean, I was never anonymous as Foyman's granddaughter. So he knew my grandmother, of course. So he, she ran into him somewhere and he was like, I want to hear Marika play. You know, I hear wonderful things. So through that connection, I ended up having a lesson with him so this would have been like 1992 or something. And right. um, I went over to his house. He lived, his in-laws house was like two blocks from where we lived as a family. And um, it was incredible. I was actually playing the arpeggione then. And <laughs> the, it was like absurd. I and the still pianist, haven't played that tune. That's a super hard sonata. It's hard. It's beautiful. I, was yeah. in, I mean, God knows why I thought that was a good idea. But anyway, so I was playing that and, you know, we had this like an hour long lesson was good. I came with the pianist I was working with and then he excused her and asked me, did I want to talk? And I was like, okay, sure. You know, and I'd met him before, but never played for him. And we just put the cello away and sat down and talked. I remember maybe like 45 minutes for an hour. He really gave me a lot of time and he could see that there was something going on with me, not knowing me well at all. And I explained that I was getting incredible criticism from people at Juilliard. I went to Barnard and Juilliard and at the, for the, at the time they had a five year degree program and Juilliard, a lot of people at Juilliard didn't want to embrace me in any way because I was going to Barnard, which meant I wasn't taking music seriously. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I was getting a lot of pressure from people in the family to like at 21, make a decision, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. What are you going to be? And I just couldn't do that as I was out dancing at night and I was writing papers on like apartheid and, you know, hanging out in the jazz clubs, listening to music, falling in love, all those kinds of things. And um, that didn't jive with the people I was around in that old world spirit. And Yo-Yo asked me a series of questions like, do you have, have you ever been on a date? Do you like to dance? Do you go out to your friends? Like, what else are you interested in? And I answered all those questions. And he was like, well, Marika, this is what music is. Music is not these four walls in a plastic, in a practice room. He's like, you clearly play beautifully, whatever. He was complimentary about my playing. I was never like the greatest in town, but I was like of the better ones. And um, he just told me to like trust my gut and to like engage with all the things that interest me and to continue to do that because whatever I decided to do with music, that would, that would fuel the music. And that he was, I don't, and it was so long ago, I can't, I'm not always sure like what was memory, what's accurate memory and what's sort of like the fantasy I created around that right. uh, 30, 40 years later. But I remember that he gave me permission to be myself and that yeah. and told me that who I was was going to serve me as a musician. And I hadn't heard that from anybody else at that point. And it was, wow. I remember ba- my mother was very, she, she was not well at the time and she died a few year, days later, which we expected, but you know, whatever. But so I remember bounding home down West End Avenue to my parents where I lived and like talking to my mom who wasn't well and being like, it's going to be okay. Like Yo-Yo said who I am. It's like, okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that is awesome. That's yeah, anytime awesome. someone gave me shit in the family, I'd be like, Yo-Yo said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, wait, so this is, this is all, this is all like super relevant to this show. Cause I don't really like this. I don't like to be fluffy and promo-y about like who I'm talking to and be like, yeah, show off a bunch of stuff. It's really all about these questions. Like a lot of people here, especially in, you know, modern America, like we, are really confused about what it means to become a musician. 
how to go about working as a musician, how to go about working on becoming a musician and where it fits out in the economy, like all that stuff. And your life has in a lot of ways been, you know, subjected to a lot of these sort of Petri dish challenges. Like you've got, you know, multiple racial backgrounds. You have multiple musical genres that influence you. You grew up in a, a historical time in New York that was you know, quite chaotic and there's a lot of change happening and that change is still, you know, happening now. And you have managed to find a role for yourself as a human being and as a musician. So I I still want to go back and get the story of your parents and their jazz club, but um, we're kind of already in this. Like, are, are you, um, well, first of all, like, were, was there racism that you got from your grandparents or from your from like the white side of your family, was there other types of judgment mixed in with the musical judgment, or was it you know more loving? Um, it was probably both, and I think you know this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately in terms of my childhood and my mixed heritage and blackness and everything. Um, you know, I was I I it's hard. I've been trying to understand myself as a child in classical music because at that time in the seventies and in the first half of the eighties for sure. I was the blackest thing and I'm a light skinned woman. Like I was the blackest thing for miles anywhere I went, whether it was music camp or the school. There was one other girl, Hillary Patterson in mm. school for strings at the time. And actually her father's a trombone player. And he's recently been showing up at my gigs, like in New York city. It's been amazing. Like 40 years later. Anyway, wow. Alfred Patterson. Yes. But, um, you know, it's not something I clued into at a young age, like preteen for sure. And younger, I wasn't, so where my mother told me that when I was like six or seven, my racial identity was through music. And I would say things to her like, I'm so lucky I get to have jazz and classical music, you mm. know. Um, and I guess that was sort of my association as I got. And racism, you know, I remember realizing as I became a young teenager that I'm things would happen. Like, say, for example, we were always at concerts at Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center is like the Foyerman family, me, my mother and Santa Sophie or my grandmother. And we'd have to go backstage, which I hated and be the family, the Foyerman family that says, oh, you played beautifully to whomever. And there are a couple of, I mean, there are probably plenty of moments, but ones that I remember vividly. I remember sitting in the orchestra somewhere in our comp seats with my mother, who was white. And um, I must have been 15. I had tons of hair and like, you know, it was like corkscrew, tons of corkscrew curls coming out of my head. And we were sitting there and these two, well, everybody in the building was probably white, but these two elderly white women were behind us. And this woman, one of them tapped on my shoulder and asked me, would I please put my hair back? Cause she couldn't see. And I was horrified. But at that age, it was probably like mid eighties. It was, I wasn't horrified because she asked me, I was horrified that I was causing like some sort of interference with her experience and I went to grab like a rubber band from my pocket and put my hair back and I remember my mother like slapped my hand she was like don't you dare she was like if you were a basketball player would they ask you to chop off your head no that's your hair leave it as it is you know wow so I'm very lucky to have had a mother who happened to have been white who also really really understood race right and all of that so and people we would be standing around at intermissions and I remember one time some dingy old lady was like you know, I've been introduced as my mother's daughter and my grandmother was there and she kept big, she couldn't understand how I could possibly be my mother's daughter. And I said something crude to her, you know, being an arrogant teenager and my mother was horrified, but it, so there was some sort of like overt things that happened and happened more and more as I got older, actually. But as a young girl, I don't think I had an awareness around that. I, 
I always, you know, where it really showed itself, and this might almost sound, it's even hard to talk about, but in, as a teenager, like at music camp and things like that, it's all very social. The music always was, without question, the greatest thing. The chamber music, I grew up going to playing chamber music in every, all year long, all summer long, that's what I did, like classic Northeast classical training. And that was the greatest thing in the world, is to play that repertoire. Um, where it really showed itself more than anything else was socially in that the boys never liked me. Hmm. You know, I never got to go out, have like the boy want to sneak out with me at night. You know, Hmm. it was never me. And it was the same in my white high school. The black girls never got asked out by the white boys, but the black boys could get with the white girls. So it, it showed itself more socially at that time for me than musically. And it wasn't until I got older and started to work professionally that I started to experience and like be hip to different aspects of the racism inherent to it. Because I came from classical music royalty, I was also treated really differently than probably other black students at the time. You wow. Know? Yeah. Oh, this like is I had a red carpet. I had a red carpet to walk in. You know? <laughs> wow. Um, all the different inputs have different messages, it seems. So tell me about uh, the jazz club and your parents. Well, I guess, you know, they, from what I understand, from what they would tell me, it was the late 70s. And, um, but New York was the city at that time was almost bankrupt, as a lot of people know, or maybe don't know. But, um, and it was a really interesting, there was white flight. So it was a yeah. really, I, it was a New York that I was born into. And I really believe that whatever New York you arrive to, or you're born into, that's your New York. Mm. And all the changes that come next, we all complain about. Um, so the New York <laughs> of the seventies and eighties, I thought was amazing. I went to an, um, my favorite school I've ever attended Manhattan country school, which at the time was more of an experiment and has since become like a real institution that other schools turn to, to learn how to engage with socially conscious, integrated education. Yeah. Um, but that's who my parents were. They, and they it was a really, for me as a child, it was a really mixed, like I never felt me and my brother were amongst other mixed kids and black kids, white kids, Puerto Rican, whatever. Um, so that was the lay of the land in the Upper West Side at the time. And also class, very mixed in terms of different people's financial backgrounds and their families. And I guess my parents, my dad was a bar fly. He liked to hang out in bars and always was hearing jazz, the music. Like my childhood was listening to like Mingus and my grandfather, you know. Wait, so Dexter um, Gordon. Your at your Immediate parents were not musicians? No. My mother was a trained pianist, but not she didn't follow it professionally. She was a teacher and my dad he and he ended up at the in the seventies he had a night job, but he when he finished school, he um was one of the first in the of black men to join corporate America and rise through the ranks as a software engineer. Oh wow. Um and he continued to do that all through the years that they had the club. So they wanted a place that they could hang out in the neighborhood. Was it as well that, paid in those days as it is, as it is now? No, 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 no. No, yeah. and for a black man, no, of course not. Right. But um, no, tech wasn't a thing yet. You right. know, he was sort of ahead of his time with that. I remember that. <laughs> Actually, yeah. So he, um, yeah. So they, from what I know from them, they wanted to find, they wanted to create a place that they were feeling like was missing in the neighborhood. There were a lot of places that people used to hang out and. I knew them all, but they wanted a place also that had live music. And so they, I remember them having in meetings with people in our living room about 
and maybe it's because I was told about it later, but to raise money. To, and at that time in the city, you didn't have to have like a corporation behind you to open up a club. You right, know, yeah. <laughs> you could be like your everyday neighborhood person that needed to raise like 40 grand, which is a ton of money back then to like get an architect and do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were able to do that. And so they opened this place it was called Burgundy. It was on Amsterdam between 82nd and 83rd. And I grew up in there, man. Like I went from being like 10 to 16 in there. And yeah, it was like a lot of New York's favorite and veteran musicians had their first gigs there like peter bernstein and ben porowski and i remember tommy flanagan lived in the neighborhood and my mother was able to get a really nice steinway in there so he would just come and practice during the day what (laughs) yeah you know bobby watson would play there my favorite novella nelson and also you know interestingly enough like those old world guys from the classical music world would also be in there hanging out as would like the black literati of the time. Like there would be Ed Bradley and Marie Brown and all these people. So it was a real amazing, like third child of my parents in a way. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I'm starting to write stories down about that era and actually Anthony Bourdain cooked there for about nine months <laughs> at one point. <laughs> and I remember him quite well. So he was, it was during his, you know, addict years with, right, with crack, right. crack was everywhere. But um, yeah, so it was a wonderful place to grow up. And I heard a lot of great music in there. I mean, my father was always like, this ain't no family joint. You better get out of here. And uh, <laughs> wow. send me and my brother away like late night. Like, you're not supposed to be in here. Like whatever's going to go down in here, you ain't supposed to be here. But oh, um, wow. I could ask to stay up and like Danny Mixon, the pianist who's still around, he used mm-hmm. to play and he had this tune that I thought was the coolest thing. And uh, I always used to beg to like, can I just stay up and listen to all his sets, you know? Yeah. Wow. So you, after all of that, you wound up as a working cellist, but also very much involved in, you know, I've always admired your ability to be a legit musician and also hold down jobs at the same time. Like when you get into the idea of like, um, you know, thriving as an adult person who is a musician, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of guidance a lot of the official music school guidance is lacking, and also a lot oh, of God, the yeah. uh, mainstream non-musical growing up guidance is sort of uh, shitting on music as the idea of you can be legitimate as a musician. Like if you're still a musician, then you're not really serious about working, and if you're kind of having a job, then you're not really serious about being a musician. And it's really false, both of those things. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say I never had a plan. Mm-hmm. I don't think I saw beyond like. When I was in my 20s, early 20s, when I finished Barnard and Juilliard, I moved to California, to San Francisco. I had grown up in New York my whole life and all these tragedies had happened in my family and I needed to get the hell out of here. Hmm. And um, I remember, well, you know, there's so much, so many tales, but Raya Garbazova, who was a famous cellist and Rostropovich's like right-hand woman, she had lent me her second cello from hmm. 17, whatever, for pretty much all of high school and college. Cause I played for her. just, this is also the privilege of coming from legacy. Yeah. That's the only reason I had was able, she lent it to me and why I had a connection to her. And I was playing some like really shitty cello at the time. And she was like, no, this won't do for 40 months. Grant, whatever, you know, so she lent right. me some fancy <laughs> cello. And that was my cello it was too big for, in hindsight. I was like, Oh, that shit was much too big for me. But anyway, um, when I decided not to pursue a master's in Juilliard, the day of my senior recital at, at Julia for undergrad and Barnard, she 
called me and demanded I give her her cello back that afternoon because I would never amount to anything, essentially, is what I read from it, because I wasn't going to have a master's. And it was devastating. I mean, some things get very personal. My mother had already passed. I didn't have, like, my rallying person by Mm. my side anymore. Um, So I didn't have a cello for a year. My last year that I lived in New York, maybe 20 to 23, and I felt like I had no identity. It was a strange moment. I had jobs. I worked all different kinds of like restaurants and like, you know, part-time shit here and there, stuffing envelopes or whatever. But, um, when I moved, so when I moved to California, my grandmother was incredible and sold a family thing so that I could have a cello. And, um, I got out to California and I didn't even know if I would play. I just knew I had to have it with me. Hmm. And, um, the first couple of years I moved to San Francisco, man, I hardly played. I was like, I got jobs in cafes. My first job was sterilizing piercing jewelry for my neighbors. Hmm. And I like made $7 an hour and it was plenty to like live in San Francisco at the time, if you can imagine. Wait, so what years were these? This was like 94 when I got wow. there. So you've really been in the best parts of America, like the, <laughs> I the mythological I golden the- age of the 70s, 80s, New York, and then 90s San Francisco. Yeah, I always say I catch the tail end of a great era to yeah. tend to, <laughs> you know. See, I moved to New York from from Wisconsin in like 97, 98. When so you got the it was tail just, end. Sort of the tail end, but it was also just like really watching it fall apart. Like the clubs were starting to really, right. really get shuttered. Well, uh, the real, est- had the real estate his- thing was going nuts. I mean, it was already happening before I got there, but it was just like... I yeah, I watched the holes. crossing into intolerability, and then I still stuck around for twenty years. But it was just like, oh god, <laughs> the New York that I grew up fantasizing about. Because I'm from upstate, you know, I'm from Ithaca, so we would come down Are to the, the city in like, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Christmas, I had an uncle and aunt who lived in Brooklyn and worked in showbiz, and I sort of had like a a family window into what that life was like and we would see it once a year so i just like loved new york as a kid also just watching sesame street you kind of get uh fed that in your dna you Um, know i was on sesame street yeah Mm, maybe you met my uncle he worked on sesame street really what did he do he was like an electrician uh you know still probably yeah yeah but he did a bunch of stuff like stagehand electrician stuff and lighting design he kind of moved into more technical things from the area of art and lighting Wow. Well, good. He probably has a good pension. IATSE is no joke. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they they, they make good money, but I don't know any of them who are happy. Well, you know, a lot of them are Trump supporters. So like, there you have it. Can't be happy. They must not be happy. (laughs) He didn't fall that far. Thank goddess. <laughs> no. No, he's a he's a great guy and he's he's a fascinating fascinating person. Really highly educated as well, just a super smart, you know, he I mean, I could go on about my uncle for a long time, but um this is your episode, so <laughs> <laughs> Um but yeah, like that that whole thing. Um so yeah, where were we? You moved to San Francisco in the 90s. I moved to San Yeah, and I I was just like and then I worked in cafes and mm-hmm. I was very fortunate my dad who had spent like probably $100,000 on my private education um was incredibly supportive of me finding myself this way. Never once was like, yeah, but what are you going to do? You know, I got a job in my local cafe. I'm so excited to be like, good for you, Kika. You know. Oh, that's great. So So between your dad and Yo-Yo, you did have some support. (laughs) And then. Oh, I had huge amounts of support from lots of people, but like many young girls or maybe boys too. I can't speak to that. Like I retained the negative shit. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like that's what really held weight on me. Um, Literally and figuratively, actually. But anyway, so I 
yeah, I moved out there. And then I, you know, I joined a community orchestra. A friend of mine from childhood was like, when did you, are you playing? And I was like, no, he happened to live out there. He's like, I play in a community orchestra on Saturdays. You should come. I was like, okay, why not? And I went there and I mean, like the shittiest shit, shit playing. I mean, your question about amateur. I mean, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I sat down and played and the conductor was like, I'll pay you to come back here every Saturday. Holy shit. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) And so that became a really fun social thing. Like there was a big partying group of people in there and we Mm. had a lot of fun. And it was, it brought me back to the cello and I ended up playing the Elgar concerto with that orchestra. Mm. And from there I met slowly, you know, I met a couple people were hired to be in there that were professional. And very soon after I joined would say, told me like, you know, there's like legit orchestras around you could play in. And it's funny because at that time I had never had a resume, you know, and I learned how to make a resume and you put Juilliard on something like at that time, at least every door opened for me in California, just mm-hmm. like that meant a lot to people. It didn't really mean much in New York. Cause if you came up in that kind of intensive, at least my experience was coming up in that intensive classical training, the way I did, it was sort of just normal that you would then go to Julia. Like that wasn't special. You didn't make you special in any way, but I got to California and suddenly it was like, you were special because you did that. Um, so I certainly opportunities made themselves available to me and I started taking auditions and doing well. And so that was sort of how I transferred into playing professionally, like classically in orchestras and stuff like that. Right. And I joined a string quartet, San Francisco quartet, San Francisco, and you know, it's all about meeting people and just all that kind of stuff. And yeah. And then it was in my, a few years later, like in my late twenties, when I, um, start to run into some really people that I found really interesting musically, creatively. And I was always listening to other music and I'd tried to play the trombone and the bass. And I never assumed I could play the kinds of other music I loved on the cello. It just, even growing up in a jazz club with very creative minds around me, nobody ever said at like 13, like, Hey, let me sit you down and teach you how to play through some changes or like learn this tune that was never even considered. Oh, wow. Yeah. It wasn't, I was a listener. I was like the like, girl in the audience, like loving everything. And I, ne- I mean, I have friends to this day that I met at Augie's when we were 18 who will tell you like they didn't even know the first year we met, we knew each other that I played the cello, hmm. you know, and that I was going to Juilliard because it to me, they were such separate things. Wow. Uh, this yeah. is incredible. So like as far as those ages, like uh, late teens, you know, 14, 17, and then in your 20s, like who were you? listening to like who were you really a fan of or that was there music that you fixated on as people I, when do when i discovered gil scott heron i thought i had heard all i ever needed to hear like right. gil scott heron to me was like and he still is one of my all-time favorite musicians minds yeah. writers um and i also you know the quartet i grew up in jazz listening to um that i every time they were playing like the vanguard or whatever my parents would take me was the Don Pullen and George Adams Quartet with Danny Richmond and Cameron Brown. To Jeez. Me, that was like <laughs> everything about music because they would be Wait, did you and... did you also see Mingus though? I never saw Mingus live. No, right. my parents did a lot, but I didn't. But a lot of those guys were Mingus cats. That was his last band. Yeah, yeah. That, but they were part of his last band. Yeah. But something that was so, I couldn't have articulated probably at that age, but that all those records that they made and when I would hear them live, it was like... They sound, I didn't grow up with any kind of religion or relationship to church music. I mean, I learned, I would hear, I knew gospel music, but I didn't have any personal spiritual relationship to that at all. And 
but something about what they played felt holy to me because they would be so groovy and funky, mm-hmm. like Gil or like, you know, the, the, the funk or the blues, whatever else I'd be listening to. And then they would go off into this totally out that now you might consider avant-garde, whatever, like not the groove would disappear, but you always, you never, they didn't lose my, even as a 15 year old, I never lost my intense engagement with what they were doing. And then yeah. out of nowhere, they would just drop back down into this funky ass groove and like happy major thirds. And I was <laughs> like, ah! see that experience is what we don't really get much of today where it's really about the journey like, I mean, that's how I came to music was just like being in a room with people playing and and just going with it as the energy would transform and watching a band and watching where the band would take the energy and, and that whole connection, um, you know, very much like a church service too. Like there's that thing where you start in one place and you go to other places mm-hmm. in community. And that's right. that's a huge amount of what I'm trying to uh, build musically in my life now is just like that feeling of connection and that sense of a journey. Um, yeah. You know, you reminded me a couple of stories. I, I went and saw a big concert one time. I don't know if you remember this, maybe back in the sort of mid late nineties, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter put out a duet album. I think it was called mm-hmm. one plus one or one by one or something. And it's still out there, but it's just the two of them improvising together. Nothing else. No rhythm section. It's just piano and sax. And it's those two guys. So obviously, you you know what to expect. And I don't think I ever listened to the album, but I went to the show. I'm like, if they mm. come to town, you go. That right. That's that's what you right. do. And um, and they came out on stage, and it was just a, an amazing, uh, you know, that thing you talk about, about the groove going away and about the energy hanging in the room and everyone being there. They came out and the piano was on one end of the stage and Wayne's mic was on the other end of the stage and they came out on opposite ends of the stage and they sort of whispered to each other through the mics and they're like, yeah, here we are, you know, and then they just started making jokes with each other like, this place is going to empty out. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, Wayne said it back, it's like, yeah, it's going to empty, long pause, out. (laughs) And people, they hadn't played one note yet. And people in the audience who weren't like true fans who were just kind of going because that's what was booked at the Civic Center. They were just going like, right. what, what's, who are they? What's going on? What's happening? And then they started playing and they're playing, you know, like the classic stuff that they're known for, but they're playing in this super spaced out way. And it was just exactly that. It was like going deep into that kind of connection space. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, after 15, 20 minutes, people started walking out like a full sold out, you know, 5,000 oh, seat sure. theater yeah. and people aren't really up to that, you know, and then you get into the questions of, you know, the record business and capitalism and how it's really just content for, you know, grist for the mill type thing. And that real musical connection is sort of left out of the entire transaction and the conversation. Um, yeah. So, yeah, well, that's I mean, commerce, you, so right? you so you were born like in sort of the inner sanction of kind of both old school. Like you had you had 70s jazz New York scene and then you had your classical royalty scene. You kind of washed out of that, moved to California and then rediscovered music on your own, sort of, I don't want to say at the margins, but you had to find it in your own way to sort of find your own footing as a person. So how did that go from there? Totally. And I will say, you know, I remember, it seems so it's so long ago now, but, you know, growing up as Foyerman's granddaughter and as a cellist was an incredible amount of pressure put on me, um, not by my immediate family, but 
all the things I talked about earlier, all those kinds of people. Well, and, yeah, you know, just show a up name for recognition. For Tanglewood, and they'd be like, "How's your mom?" I'd be like, "Oh my god." Yeah, like so, the Lennon children almost. <laughs> yeah, you know, in, yeah, in the classical version of that. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So, um, and one of the reasons, I mean, I moved to California. I didn't even know I was moving there. I went out there for two weeks, and then I stayed. But the, um, but one of the things that was important to me once I was there, when I started playing, was like, I wanted to know could I find whatever success meant to me at that moment um, as a cellist and have nobody know where I come from. And so I didn't tell anybody in California, especially when I was hardcore in the classical, like running around playing in orchestras and stuff. I didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And this is pre-social media. So nobody knew. That's great. And I remember I finally like made the, I didn't win this audition, but I made the finals of the only group that I really cared about because Jeffrey Kahane was the con was the conductor and he was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to play under him. And, um, it was after, I remember it was, I must've been like 26 or something. And it was after that, that I started to be like, oh yeah, did I ever mention that my <laughs> grandfather and people would be like, say what? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, was, that was really important to me. Like, can do I have a skill set if I'm not, you know, if nobody knows where I come from? And I was fine. But what ended up happening is that I met two people, um, sort of in my later mid to late twenties. Uh, once I was already like around playing around, um, and you know how it is, like freelance, you just it's a, at that time it was just your answering machine, you know, just word of mouth. And, um, I got asked to play in a group that played live composed music to animation. And Matt Brubeck, Dave Brubeck's son, mm -hmm. who's a wonderful cellist. He was sort of like the it guy at the time. And I used to get the calls like, Hey, Marika, Matt can't make it. Are you available? I'd be like, yes. Yeah. And, um, so he couldn't make it. So I, did this gig and it was really hard like I spent a lot of time practicing that music and I was like and at that time also like sort of new music this was had the jazz like hint to it but a lot of the new music was like just basically unplayable you know anyway yeah yeah so, I still feel like a lot of it I can't listen to it either but yeah, so this no, was this like, was like new classical it wasn't jazz like what was no, the gig no no he came from a, a jazz background but it was all written out yeah. at least for me and there was a violinist in this group her name is Carla Kilstead and yeah we, that's where we met and we were like 26, 27 years old. And I was hired just to play this one gig with this group. And after we did the gig, some film festival or something, they were like, will you be in this band? We play every Monday night at Minna gallery or something. Oh my God. I can't believe the memories I'm having. And so I was like, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't have amplification. How many people were in the band? Oh, maybe five with me. Right. Because like then you wound up, we wound up in a trio with her and Shazad at one point, right? That came later, yeah. yeah. But so this is how I met Carla, and Carla ha had a huge impact on the trajectory of my musical life because mm -hmm. I would sit there, and they would all take solos every Monday night, and I would just be like, "How do they?" It was like magic. I was like, "I don't understand," and like the horn player who was the leader of the band would like finish his solo with a lick, and Carla would play that lick and take it over. I was like, "I don't understand how you do that." And it really felt like magic to me. And I would just sit there and never take a solo because I didn't know how. And I just, I couldn't understand what they were doing. And I remember one night we were playing some party and Nick, the leader, was like, Marika, take a solo. And this is like a year into it, you know. And I was like, I can't. And he was like, do it. And everybody's dancing because it was like a funky band. And I was like, I can't. And Carla looked at me and she was like, fucking do it, Marika. And I was like, oh, my God. Super laid and, back, right? No pressure. Well, yeah, and I just like, 
play like rhythm on an E, you know, like a high E for like three minutes, which felt like two and a half hours. And I, that's literally all I did. And I have never been so proud of myself. I remember afterwards, me and Carla went outside. I was like bouncing off the walls. It's like, I did it. I did it. I did it. So, I mean, (laughs) I don't, I don't want to, uh, spoil people's impressions of her. I, I've only seen her. I've never met her, but let's talk about Carla for a second. Cause she's a super high level player, very creative. Um, and so you had a, a friendship, but like how, how I've been yelled at on stage and then I've been given those like darting glances of like, do this or die. And it's the best thing to have happen. It's not always given in a friendly way. And then people can laugh about it later. Like what was your relationship like for her to be able to do that with you? Oh, we were already friends, yeah. you know, and like, yeah, we were, I mean, I've had, no, that was, I, I didn't even think twice about. Yeah. So she wasn't consider- being cruel. No, no, yeah, that yeah. was like tough love, you know, yeah, that was like, yeah. get over your fucking self and just play something. And I remember afterwards we were just like, I never have to do that for the first time again. Like, holy shit, I broke the ice. And mm-hmm. so through that experience and meeting Carla and, That's you know, beautiful. I really, admired her. Like she's an incredible violinist, like truly extraordinary musician yeah i mean it's just i want to like i'll tell the listeners about my first time seeing her so i think it was i think i saw your trio at joe's pub um i also have definitely heard the records but this this is a woman who plays really cool violin stuff just alone on the violin you know melodically she's just like the kind of thing where it's super interesting to hear but i've also heard her sing counter counter melodies mm-hmm. to what she was playing so like improvising two melodies at once mm-hmm. like really mind-blowing musician yeah she's she blew my mind and i was in awe of her and she was also an incredibly supportive person in that she really encouraged me and recommended me for shit all over the place. So I remember the first time I showed up to play with some singer-songer. Let me tell you something, Trevor. Singer-songer. I, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I didn't even know what a vert set. I remember showing up for sound. I don't know what a sound check is. Mm-hmm. And I show up there and, like, this is where I met everybody. It's where I met Andy Borger, Rob Berger. Anyway, so I showed up to this guy, Austin Soundcheck. I'll never forget this. And I didn't know what a sound check was. And I'll never forget this moment. Somebody was like, okay, let me get, um, this voice is coming from, where is it coming from? You know, obviously it's a sound engineer, but I didn't know that at the time. And someone's like, uh, let me get a little bit of that kick. I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I just hear Andy, I mean, we just met, but I hear we became dear friends, but he, you know, he hits the kick drum. I just hear this, don't, don't. And I, my whole insides turned inside. I was like, oh, what's happening? This is so exciting. <laughs> that sound. And, you know, they're tweaking the kick drum. And I was like, ah, this is amazing. Anyway, and they were like, well, Marika, let's start at the verse. I was like, I don't know what the fuck a verse is. Like, I didn't know, understand. Wow, four. so it was really trial by fire for you. I learned everything on the job, mm-hmm. totally. And I was a really strong cellist, but I had no background in pop music or deconstructing it. I never even thought about things that way. Yeah, it's a completely different thing. It was so hard. I mean, I spent years crying, like sitting alone at home with like a joint and a bottle of scotch being like, I don't know what to do by myself. And like with my cello and I really learned on the job. And I remember it seemed like so long, but I guess it was. And then through Carla, I met this another extraordinary musician, Julia Eisenberg, mm. whose band was at the time, and it's still whatever she does, Charming Hostess. And Carla was in that band. And they were at that point like a big seven-piece like Balkan funk band. This is before everybody was like a Balkan funk band. And so, <laughs> um, and I used to go hear them play and 
I was just blown away by them. And Julie and I met, and then she called me one day out of the blue. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm so glad to hear from you. And she was like, so I need a third, I need another singer for something I'm doing. Um, can you come sing with me? And I was like, I don't, I'm not a singer. And she was like, no, Carla told me she heard you singing along something in the car the day and then you have a really nice voice. So I'd like you to come sing with me. That's exactly <laughs> how Julia is. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's and not how you get I, orchestra jobs, but you can get band <laughs> jobs that way. And it that's been a lifelong friendship and um, musical collaboration that's taken us all over the world together. Um, and she's one of my favorite composers and human beings. And So did the Julia Eisenberg thing, was that a project of, under her name or did it have a name yeah. as a band? No, it was her. It's Charming Hostess. And Charming she Hostess. had just put out a record on Sadik for John Zorn mm -hmm. with three voices. All she's Her music is all based in scholarship. And it's um, she took the letters between Asya Lassis and... Walter Benjamin, German Jews in World War II, hmm. and they were fleeing and they were artists. And she was like an avant-garde, like puppeteer, political. And they fell in love despite everything. And she took their letters and set it to music for three singers, and sometimes five, but we toured it as three. Yeah. Anyway, it was extraordinary. And, you know, really awkward intervals you have to sing. And we sang in seven different languages. And Jeez. Carla had been in the group. Before. I replaced Carla in that group. And... Hmm. Um, Anyway, those two women were continue to be, but at that age in my late twenties, were instrumental in exposing me as a cellist to new ways of playing. And right. at that time, like what Carla can do with her voice and her violin, at that time in the Bay, if you were a string player playing music that wasn't classical, it was just assumed that you could sing and play and that you could do it like in polyrhythms and in you know, <laughs> weird intervals with yourself. And so that's what we did. Yeah. And like, I was thinking about that after our lesson the other day, I was like, so funny. I moved to New York because for many different reasons when I moved home, but I haven't maintained that level of integrity in terms of the relationship between what I do with my voice and my instrument. Well, there's ways and there's, I mean, there's different ways to do that. Like I come to what I do from a song background. Like I just want to be able to lay a song down in the best possible way that I can. And, it, and it's because I want to feel a certain way. It's not because I'm trying to get any ideas across. So I do right. come across musicians, you know, especially folks in the scene with like John Zorn and Carla, where I listen to really sophisticated music and it doesn't connect with me because my head right. will kind of melt down as it's absorbing right. the music and I don't really get the heart connection. Even though I know mm -hmm. it's there, I'm distracted by too much information in music. Um, but that's the beautiful thing about what Carla and Julia make is yeah. that it can go just like, I mean, and it's the same thing that attracts me to people like Don Poulin and George Adams or like Jason Moran and the bandwagon. It's like this capacity to engage with complicated musical ideas, but not have that be the focus of what you're doing yeah. and maintain the heart soul connection to what music makes you feel. You know? Wait, so I, all right, I'll just quick sidebar here. So you lived in the Bay Area for all those years and you were in the music scene. What was your interaction like with the deadhead community like did, was there any like there's a lot of other stuff that came out of that area at the same time i remember like I, jim campolongo was living there for a long I used time to play with jim all, every tuesday at bruno's i did yeah. tons of string arrangements for him yeah mm -hmm. i knew jim quite well um i mean he's not a deadhead like what what about people oh, God, you know no. also like michael franti <laughs> and charlie hunter like there's a huge amount of amazing music yeah. that came out of there um, so yeah, like what else happened for you? Were you aware well, of it? Were you involved? 
I was aware of a lot of things. I I was not so moved by the jazz scene. Like actually, when I moved to San Francisco, my one of my first temp jobs was as a faxer for a mutual funds company, uh-huh. and people just throw things at me to fax for them. It was like really anyway. But so I remember faxing my dad right when I got there, and I was like, "No Jews, no jazz. I'll be home soon." I was like, "What the fuck is this? There's no Jews here. There's no Puerto Ricans, and there's no jazz. What is this place?" So I wasn't so hip. I mean, there was a jazz scene. It wasn't the thing I was familiar with the way I knew in New York. So I wasn't um, so engaged with that. Uh, Deadheads, you know, I lived in the upper hate for years. I was sort of like, ugh, you know, they're here. This is like a, a, a West coast phenomenon. I didn't, I was never a deadhead. Um, for sure. I knew who Michael Franti was. And um, I worked with Jim Campolongo for years and I worked with a lot of singer songwriters. Like one of my favorites, Etienne de Rocher. Um, so, yeah. So, but I found myself more, I guess, doing sort of uh, singer songer stuff and then weirdo, really sort of like art rock, art song stuff. Like when we started Two Foot Yard, well, Carla started it. It was a, tri- a solo record for John Zorn. And she had asked me and Shazad to come in and play on it. And we did it over two weeks in this studio and we rehearsed. And like, this is now our early 30s. And it's funny because to think, the way time works because we would spend days and days and days together in a room, just writing Mm -hmm. and just improvising and working shit out for days on end and hours and hours and hours at a time. And you know, we never do that now. Yeah, (laughs) apparently. So we, uh, yeah. So I was, the music I was most involved with was sort of like the art song, but I made my living still like, like we didn't make any, that was art for art's sake in Oakland in those days, you know, two foot yard ended up making good money. But in the early days, nobody was there for the, it had nothing to do with making a living. My living mm-hmm. came from teaching cello and from playing in orchestras and all the work that we did that sort of gives me cred now had nothing to do with income ever. Yeah. You know? Well, tell me about two foot yard. Cause that's, that's an amazing band. And then you said you guys did make some money eventually. Was that mostly from touring or from record sales? Like what, what did you oh, guys? Oh, not record sales. No. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. No, from touring. We ended up getting, we had a, we were very fortunate. I mean, we, Carla also, you know, was a bit of a darling and probably still is, but you know, she was, had a lot of attention. This is also very important, like pre-social media, like we would yeah. make flyers and go to Kinko's at two in the morning, you know, all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we ended up having a manager Within a year or two, we got a very amazing manager, Sue Bernstein. She's still and was doing this, it. Was this getting back to the East Coast, or what, at what point did you move Sue, back east? I moved back east when I moved back, like two thousand and five, I mm-hmm. think. So this is week. Sue joined us, and we were starting to do touring and stuff. I mean, we toured like with Carla's other band, Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum, which was like a prog rock experimental noise experience. So we at those days in the Bay, it was like so fertile. And and I look back on it now, and it's interesting to me that that's where I was drawn to, that I didn't go to L.A. or stay in New York, where I think I'm so grateful that those early years of like, the fermentation as a the kind of musician I discovered I wanted to be in the world um, was there, where it was never about commerce. Yeah. And like it was never about being liked it was just about it was really like the work and then the show was like oh yeah now let's play a show you yeah know? i mean the economy was structured differently where you could make a couple of bucks doing a gig you could also make a, a 
decent, you know, you could make your rent basically doing part-time stuff. So people could totally get like whatever side jobs they felt mm-hmm. like they wanted to have. And then like kind of salt and pepper to taste in there. And then there's plenty of ways to get exposed to music in person. Like I remember just being able to walk up and down the street in New York or any one of these cities where there's just be music happening in clubs. You could just walk in and out, you know, maybe a couple bucks for a cover charge, but it was just like, it was never, there was never like, I feel like now we have this amazing shortage of in-person musical connection while we have just overwhelming abundance online on you know Instagram and YouTube. Like you can get bite-sized tastes of excellent music everywhere you look, but almost no real fuel for a music career in any of these places. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I do a lot of like, um, not teaching like classroom teaching, but I show up at like summer institutes and you know whatever I get hired to do workshops with young musicians and stuff and I'm often asked the question like how did you chart your career or you know and it's as now that I'm getting older the times are really 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 different and I again was very lucky to catch the tail end of a wonderful era in the bay when it was like cheap to live there Mm -hmm. so you could spend take off and not work for seven days and just be in a room with three people writing, improvising and figuring things out and then emerge and get back to work and still make rent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a different era for the kids today in terms of just like the financial burden of well, what yeah. it takes to live in any of these cities, which I think now is going to shift. But anyway, that's a different story. But it's not just what it takes to live in the cities. Like there's less on offer in those cities because there's so many fewer clubs that are able to stay open in those Although, same cities. Although, you know, for us, the Bay Area back then, we only had a few clubs we could really play, you know? Yeah. I mean, and we played the shit out of those clubs. You know, it wasn't anything like New York, like in terms of the availability of venues, like small venues, you know, it Mm. was like, I think, and I think it's still the case for young, especially when you're young, it's like, if you want to do this thing, you're going to do it. It doesn't matter what's available to you. You'll make the space or whatever, you know. Was there like a house party scene too? Probably, but I wasn't hip to it. Yeah. I remember like, just, I feel like, um, I mean, I I do whine about this frequently, but there's like the um, the way technology has kind of eclipsed our musical experiences, you know, over the last 20, 30 years. And I remember sitting at a house party once in New York. This was like, ni- uh, say, 99 or 2000, maybe. And um, again, simpler times, but, the, you know, DJs, huge still. And there, I was at this party and there was some people playing music. Uh, it was like this little kind of mini jam happening at a party and people were sort of into it. And it was like someone was playing a song, uh, it kind of like, you know, a little bit of a round robin kind of thing. But there was like a nice little vibe there where people were sort of trading music. And then there was this one person playing and then someone over in the corner put a record on the stereo and started fading it in. Like had a CD oh, <laughs> underneath the person performing and it was just like... I don't know. People were partying, whatever. But this was like a. It was just. It just so didn't work. And then everyone looked over at this guy like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, oh, "I just thought it would mix really cool." <laughs> <laughs> right. And just like the disc, I could sense the disconnect happening then. But I want to. Uh, I want to jump. I don't want to jump, but I want to sort of scan forward here because you've you've created a body of work on your own you've got your own band you're a band leader you're a composer performer singer you've you've evolved into like a full-fledged artist um so we've been talking about like the fermentation period but um just tell me a little bit about your current slate of projects over let's say the last 10 years 
Well, yeah, since I've been back in New York, I Tufa Yard was alive and well and charming hostess as well when I left the Bay and moved mm-hmm. to New York. And I was still touring. Like I came to New York. I'd been coming to New York quite a bit for the last two years for work. I was starting to like have this bi-coastal experience yeah. before I moved home. Because those are traveling was, bands, but you also had work on both coasts. Yeah. And you know, just music, it's like you just meet. I mean, I'm a very social person by yeah. nature. And so like I meet people. I'm 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 somebody that can walk into a party where I know nobody and feel very at ease, you yeah. know. So I'm very fortunate that way in that a lot of what we do is about meeting people and being able to like have an interaction and carry on, you know. And so I was already getting calls from people to play on records and stuff in New York um, because there was a big bi-coastal thing anyway happening in the scene I was living in. Um, And then when I came home, so I was able to come back to New York and I was still touring Bi-coastal used to be a thing. (laughs) Right? Imagine. But, and it wasn't, you know, I I really liked it at first and then it became sort of unhappy because I'd get home to California and nobody would remember. They'd be like, oh, are you here? You know, (laughs) I'd be in New York and people were like, oh, you're not in California. So anyway. I remember there um, was this band that actually relocated from New York to SF and I guess one of the guys was doing some some tech stuff. But in an interview, the guy said, yeah, we're bi-coastal curious. Yeah, Like they were kind of trying it out. I don't know if it ended up working out for them, but it was just like for a moment there. Yeah. It's hard to maintain for sure. But back then, you know, you JetBlue just started and there was like $99 round trip. That's right. So it was like yep. very doable. Yep. Um, but anyway, so I moved home. And one of the reasons I moved back to New York, well, there were many, but one was that I was no longer, the Bay is a very transient place. And a lot of the people that I had come up with there um, had all sort of dispersed. A lot of people came to New York or went other places or what have you. And I would come home from tour for with whoever I might've been on tour with. And I just felt, I would get really blue, which could have been a number of things, but also I just didn't feel engaged or compelled or inspired by what was happening locally anymore. And it might've been that sort of like my age group or what my cohorts, we had sort of all sort of people were starting to pair off and whatever reason, and you know, the tech was starting to pick up. And so clubs were closing. So it was like things were shifting in the Bay Area and I wasn't inspired and I was getting kind of blue about it. And I knew I wanted to come home eventually. And so I moved back to New York. And shortly after that, um, a few years after that, maybe Two Foot Yard folded. We we called it quits for a mm-hmm. number of reasons. And um, But it was sort of immediate that the minute Two Foot Yard ended, I started working on my own shit. And it was actually driving to Carla's wedding, me and Shazad, fifth, I don't know how many years ago, 12 years ago or something, 13 years ago. And I had inherited just a little chunk of, a little bit of money. And um, I was like, what should I do with this, Shazad? Like, it's not enough to like change my life in any fundamental way, but it feels like it shouldn't just be, you know, spent on like dinner and drinks and a cute dress. So... <laughs> He was like, he came up with this idea. He was like, Marika, you should make a solo record. I was like, what would I put on it? You know, I'd, I'd written a couple of songs for Two Foot Yard and another band, Red Pocket, I was in, but I hadn't like spent a lot of time doing that. And he was like, well, why don't you ask your friends to write you pieces and record it? And he was like, and get Roz Mess and I to produce it. And like, literally, that's what I did. Mm. <laughs> and um, And that really shifted things for me. It also had me people wrote me some really hard music. I had to learn all this music and I'm very dedicated to memorization in terms of performance um, whenever possible. So um, I spent a couple of years, you know, receiving those pieces and learning them. And I recorded the record. I put it out myself. I'm not the savviest of business people. So 
I think somebody else that had sort of the connections I've had might have a little savvier than I am, might've been able to get a record deal or get somebody interested in them. But I just, that was, that's never been my, um, modus operandi, like the work itself. And then I'm like, I want to put it out and I don't want to play politics and take forever. So here it comes. So I, I did that. And I also recorded a record of songs at the same time. I was developed, like whenever I would get tired of practicing this new material, people had written for me, I would sit down and then work on a song. And at that time, Adam Levy, wonderful guitarist, we've been dear friends since the nineties in the Bay. He had started something called the song club and he invited a number of us to join it. And basically what you did, he would send out a title or just words like say no dancing on a Sunday night. And you had until Thursday (laughs) to record a song using those words. It could become the refrain or it could just be in passing. Um, And then you had until midnight on Thursday to upload it to some portal and you put your initials next to it. You could listen to what everybody else wrote and then you move on to the next week. And it was just solely to maintain the craft of songwriting. Yeah. But we all got like one or two records out of it. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> and I loved Adam, admired him for so many years that, um, and we've been dear friends, really such a sweet friendship. And I was so touched that he, he knew he was so, I've been very fortunate to have really the wonderful support of musicians that I've admired, who I feel are like eons beyond me in their experience and uh, like knowledge of certain things around what we're doing, but have, who have embraced me and taken me with them. And that's, I've been very, very, very fortunate. And Adam's one, Carl, all these, one of those people. So, um, so yeah, so I started making my own records and then, you know, you're in town. And I mean, when I teach young students, like I do a lot of different things with them, but I always leave one full session for, talking like ask me any question about what it's Mm. like to be like anything about being a professional musician (laughs) the yo-yo how do you yeah like how do you get a how do you get a gig like how do you segue into being in new york and then i stopped i remember i'm not comfortable when two foot yard pretty much an open book stopped and we weren't touring all the time i was clear that like i wanted to spend a year or two much more in new york city than traveling because i wanted to become a local musician you know I, did I, a, I made a similar thing myself. I just like, that's all I ever really want to be as a, a local musician. Yeah. And then I was like, fuck this shit. I need to make some money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But being able to make my own music, sorry, just to say, just like being able to put out my own CDs and like take that time that I took in those first 10 years, I was back to like make my own records and establish myself that way for no other reason, except to discover, find out like, what is my voice? If it's just me, you know, making it, um, was incredibly helpful for me as a human being. And I think ultimately probably as a cellist and an artist. And for sure, I did discover that if you do put out your own work, people, the powers that be, or even our peers look at you with a little bit more respect. You know, it's like, oh, she has, even if you don't like what you, the person is making, it's like, oh, but they had the gumption to make it. You exactly. Know? Yeah. It's a calling and card so, and a proving ground. And now that I'm like even later, years later now, I can, I have a body of work to show with whatever, for whatever I'm going to be doing next, you know? So I'm really grateful that I was inspired to do that when I did it. Cause none of this, none of that made me, it cost me tons of money. I Mm -hmm. didn't make any money doing that. Yeah. Well, my last question is if, if there's something you would advise a younger or newer musician, maybe not so young, to avoid completely if they can, or anything you wish you could have avoided, um, I know we've been through plenty already, but is there anything you would single out? 
there's two things. The thing I successfully avoided that I always tell young people to avoid is an office job, a nine to five job. You're going to have to make your living somehow before you have enough gigs to pay your rent. I always advise getting shift-based work that you can get covered so that Mm. if you need to show up somewhere, you can just be not there. And if you have an office job, I think the tendency, if you're working nine to five, you're up at seven, you're not really home till seven. By the time you get home, you're cooked. There's a very rare person that's going to be able to be really creative and engaged with their work in addition to a nine to five job. So I, I was able to always work in restaurants and do that kind of stuff instead of taking a nine to five job Hmm. to make ends meet. And then the thing I wasn't, and I still struggle with that I think is hard for all of us, but I do encourage young people, young artists is that to try your best. And if you have to do it just cognitively, try your best to avoid comparing yourself to anybody else. Everybody gets to where they're at in the moment you find them on there for many different reasons with many different roads. And we can look to other people for inspiration and for um, things to aspire to, but comparative professionalism and artistry I find can be really devastating and it's a human condition and it's natural. But I think that to the extent that we can avoid and control our thoughts that way, the better. Great. Well, Marika Hughes, it's been <laughs> thrilling to to get these stories from you and to talk to you today. And um, I look forward to seeing you again soon. But wow, uh, what an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Trevor. And I'll just tell all your listeners that I've been taking, le- I'm not going to, this is no secret. I've been taking lessons from you. And I have to say, it is life-changing and amazing. And you are also just such a wonderful person. And one of the cellists I admire like hugely what you do so so much so thank you oh well wow that was unexpected thank you one and one is three where the unicorns run freely in the train whistles past I heard you laugh at the things we couldn't see Green summer days abounded in a far-off mountain town Where sweet melodies and sugar snap peas, they kept us safe and sound Cherry trees fall A summer breeze we cause when we were free to be with beauty all around us bathed in their love's despair with hopscotch dreams and pretty pleas and mother may I Dusty room with 
Jimmy played, but I couldn't say who else was there with you. Strum your guitar, sing your songs and know your star. The story doesn't have to end, as oftentimes it does. Yes. Thanks for listening to Play It Like It's Music. Thanks to Marika Hughes for spending some very generous time with us. You can find her music at marikahughes.com and definitely follow her on all the socials at Marika Hughes. If you like this show, please tell a friend follow me on social media at Trevor Exter and talk to me on there if you have thoughts about the show. (laughs) Worst theme music segue ever. (laughs) No, seriously, happy to have you. We are all contending with a mutating professional landscape, jacked revenue streams, a catastrophic global pandemic, social unrest, and plenty of other noise out in the culture. Black Lives Matter. And you gotta keep playing. We don't draw any lines here between scenes or styles. As always, Thank you for listening, and remember to play it like it's music. You can check out my music on Bandcamp and other places. It's all at my website, trevorexter.com. Sign the mailing list on Substack to get this show sent right to you the very moment it comes out. Consider hiring me to score your piece, do some cello, teach you lessons, produce your show, or back you up on stage. Because music is a beautiful thing and it makes the world go round.